Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am here at my house uh, just outside of the Village of Liberty and we are overlooking my pond and at the end of the pond there's a marshland, a, a bog, and I'm here with our local herpetologist, Bill Cutler, who will be speaking with us about amphibians and reptiles and we're actually here in a uh, peeperless evening. The peepers have not appeared. It's early evening, six o'clock, and it is a little windy and a little chilly, and today was sunny, so Bill Cutler has been explaining to me that this might be why the peepers are quiet. There's not a peep from the peepers yet. Not yet. We'll, we'll see what happens. We may get lucky here in a little bit. We'll see what, uh, what comes out. So we're going to walk through the woods around the edge of the pond, and I'll then hand it over to Bill Cutler, and, and he'll explain what we're looking for. So we're now walking through the woods, which I always love to do. And I don't know if they're up yet. We could look, but I have some beautiful pink ladies, lady slipper orchids that have been, right, have been coming up. We kind of have to see it's this, right around these trees here okay. in the woods. And I, are you seeing any? Usually there are about five or six of them that come up right at the base of these trees right around here. Bee orchids, they depend on other microorganisms in the soil. And uh, generally, and this is a generalization, but sometimes it holds true, orchids, like the pink lady slipper, tend to like acid-rich soil, such as might be found under a hemlock forest like this. And uh, the presence of the very low pH acidic soils with the beneficial microbes really facilitates their growth. It's a kind of a unique flower. Orchids are actually one of the largest groups of flowering plants on planet Earth. They're monocots but they're not always found. They've really been picked, uh, picked to the extreme limits back in the, the earlier part of the 20th century. So their numbers are really reduced and they're really great to find. They take forever, it seems, to really repopulate an area. So that you have a few here is wonderful. That, that'll, that's really a good sign that this is a healthy ecosystem. Bill, you lead the way. We're on the edge of the pond. I'm not sure where you want to go. So many places to look at and see here just beautiful. Maybe we'll find some things to turn over. If you notice, under this, this beautiful hemlock canopy that we're under right now, nice springiness underfoot, you'll see lots of green dropped hemlock twigs. And I bet if we take a close look, yep, sure enough, these twigs have probably been nibbled by porcupines this past winter. Generally, porcupines will, will stake out a cluster of hemlock trees and uh, they'll actually patrol that as a territory. They're, they're very possessive of their hemlocks and they'll, they'll depend on this as a food source. So porcupines are native mammals and certainly our hemlocks are, are native conifers. And uh, here again, we've got a, another part of the diversity of the ecosystem here. Once walking through these woods, through the hemlock forest, I looked up and I saw a baby porcupine oh, up in the great. tree. They are incredible animals and I love watching them. They're great. They uh, generally will produce only one baby a year, uh, females, and uh, there's a, a whole natural protective system when the female gives birth to her baby to protect her because the, the quills in a baby porcupine are loaded and ready. Uh, they can be deployed very soon after birth, so mom has to have a 
a special protective lining in her reproductive tract to facilitate the birth of that baby porcupine. They're, they're truly tremendous. That is amazing. Bill Cutler, how did you become interested in this animal world around us? I know your specialty is the reptile and the amphibian world uh, as a herpetologist, but you have so much knowledge about the plants and about other kinds of beings that we're coexisting with. Gosh, first and foremost, I had terrific parents that put up with lots of my shenanigans as a kid. I was always out trying to get wet and dirty and, and cause as much grief and trouble as I possibly could and learn as much as I could about wildlife. And certainly through high school, they really encouraged me to pursue natural sciences as a career. And uh, eventually then at Binghamton University, I, I did some more of that and just love it to this day. By day, I, I work as a recycling coordinator for Sullivan County, but certainly my other passions in addition to that are the natural world around us, which seems to be shrinking. We're losing ground on planet Earth, unfortunately, and it's so nice to have little spots like this left in our region that we can look to and find a lot of the natural assemblages of plants and animal communities that, that are native that belong here and that we're actually the, the newcomers too. We're just joining the party, so to speak, but all this was here long before we were. It's just wonderful. And Bill, we really are facing such a challenge right now on this planet that has been here at this point billions of years, but it's really at a stress point. And certainly here in this region, in Sullivan County, we're facing a lot of development, shrinking open space, a real threat to wildlife corridors, to even the ability to produce food. I mean, so from all sides with this, and here we are, this is private land. It's, you know, we're in the Hemlock Forest and, and this is open space right here outside the village and town of Liberty. How important are these spaces for wildlife, for ourselves? What's your opinion on this? These spaces are absolutely critical to survival of, of all life, including human life. The, the interconnectedness of all things, uh, kind of an indirect quote from Rachel Carson, um, one of my, my favorite uh, scientists, really kind of underlines how much of a part of the world all this has to work together to be. And it also underlines how important it is, even for private landowners, to protect the small wet spots maybe in their backyards, the ephemeral pools that salamanders depend on for survival, and the corridors, the small corridors, sometimes only a few feet wide, that are tracts of clear land that may not have a car traveling over them too frequently. Uh, that facilitates the, the conduit of these different wetland systems and woodlands and it allows animals especially to move between them freely. And that's really very critical. If we choke down the supply or the population of an area of animals generally, what will happen over time, if there's not an adequate genetic replacement to that stock, that population will plummet. And once it's gone, it, it's very hard to recover that area. And uh, certainly we've seen by creating natural park systems and wetlands or recreating them, it takes lots of money and lots of effort by many trained people. And uh, I just think that this is a way to empower individuals at the, at the property owner level to be able to do something. Uh, certainly you have a beautiful spot here. And if, if you can work as friends with your neighbors and see to it that parcels like this can remain connected to one another, there's room for everybody. Humans can exist and the wildlife here can, can adapt and do what it needs to do to survive as well. And now we're walking towards the edge of the pond, the far edge of it. And uh, there are a lot of 
moss-covered rocks and the pond is quite shallow here and moves from pond into marshland. And Bill is lifting up a rock. I have to apologize. I'm, I'm somewhat rather clumsy. It's not uncommon for me to go headfirst into the drink, so I apologize for any strange splashing noises momentarily. I'm looking for here is spotted salamander. This is the type of clear pond, probably not a lot of fish here in this pond, although maybe some, that spotted salamanders, one of our largest salamanders in Sullivan County and in New York State, would choose to lay their eggs in. They're an explosive breeder and they'll generally mate in early spring, the third or fourth warm rainy night of spring, generally above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, brings out a mass migration of spotted salamanders and they'll make almost a direct beeline from where they hang out in the woods around the ponds directly into the ponds where they'll seek mates and they'll lay uh, clusters of eggs, usually in the hundreds. And are these spotted salamanders those beautiful translucent orange ones or are these another kind? No, these are great big black salamanders with fluorescent yellow spots on top, generally six to eight inches in length. They're a beefy salamander. When you find one, you think, holy smokes, this is really a salamander. I know what this is. <laughs> They're called mole salamanders because they actually live underground during 99% of the year in mole burrows. And you really never find them, except now during the reproductive season where they might be out close to the water's edge. And we'll just kind of look around here. Maybe we'll get lucky and, and pull one up. What I'm doing is, is carefully putting back what I just pulled over because this rusty old tire rim is now habitat. This could very well be a hiding spot for something. So as part of it's now part of the natural world, we're just going to leave it here and uh, kind of reseed it as best we can. That'll allow things to move back in underneath undisturbed. In past years, at the very end over there, I have seen thousands of eggs. That sounds like that many eggs close together could be spotted salamander eggs, but most likely it's going to be wood frogs. Wood frogs are the very first frogs of spring that also breed explosively in Sullivan County. And uh, sometimes I get, uh, get phone calls from folks that think they have a, a, a flock of ducks that have landed on their ponds at night. And why the devil would these ducks be calling at night? Well, of course, ducks are, are not calling at night. They're hunkered down for the evening. And uh, what folks are hearing are wood frogs, Rana sylvatica. And that's their reproductive call. They sound much like ducks quacking. Their Latin name, genus and species, Rana, is a, a classic genus of frogs in the New World. And uh, their species name, their specific name, Sovatica, is elf-like or spirit-like in the woods. Because you don't see them? No. <laughs> you know, I have never seen a peeper. I have not seen a wood frog. I have not seen a leopard frog if they're around here. I have from time to time seen a frog swimming along the edges of the pond about maybe uh, four or so inches long, brownish hue with black stripes. I'm not sure what frog that might have been. And I've seen toads here, but I have not seen the frogs, I don't think, that are making these amazing sounds that you're describing. Now, a few days ago, we're right at the very last day of April right now, a few days back, before I, what I think were the peepers starting, which are that high whistling sound, there was singing of frogs that was a little bit deeper, like you're describing, like the ducks. Okay. That most likely was the wood frogs. Uh, we have several ranids that occur in this area. Uh, in addition to wood frogs, uh, bullfrogs as well. Leopard frogs are, are very much less common. It seems like we've seen a population crash of leopard frogs in New mm -hmm. York State 
They have been charted in the Herp Atlas project in New York State in the 1990s, but I've found them to be extremely uncommon. My last uh, chance to really study them closely was when I was a child growing up in Circleville in Orange County, and I've, as yet I haven't found any here in Sullivan County all these years later. So I'm, I'm not sure they're, they're here. I know some people have found them, but I haven't been able to find them myself. One concern may involve overcollection of leopard frogs. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, regrettably in high school biology programs around the country, kids were actually paid to collect leopard frogs for the dissection labs. It's a pretty horrific ending for a frog, but more importantly, it may have resulted in an actual population crash. Certainly not extinction, but uh, in terms of biologists' warning signs, that's usually a big one. That's a species that probably will be able to recover unless there's some other factors we haven't really looked at yet. But we just need to give them time. We need to stop over collecting them or collecting them at all at this point and uh, just allow their numbers to return to what, uh, what might be termed normal by the environment. And what about these peepers? Let's take the peepers and the wood frogs that you were talking about. I look forward to the beginning of their mating and their songs and the peepers become this wave of incredible song that for me is the start of spring. If I don't hear the peepers, I don't care what date it is, it's not spring. And you know, a friend and I here in the neighborhood will call each other when we hear the peepers. And I am absolutely thrilled when I hear the frogs for the first time in the season. And I'm concerned about what we're hearing about the decline in population, about really what's happening throughout the animal kingdom. What is your opinion about the frogs? What's going on and what do you think it represents and how concerned should we really be about this? Well, Sabrina, we should be very concerned. Worldwide, there's been an, a noted 33% decline in amphibian populations worldwide. That's a huge number. Uh, in the past 20 years, it's been charted that about 176 species of amphibians worldwide out of possibly 6,000 have gone extinct. And that really, for a 20 or 30 year observation window, is a catastrophic loss. Uh, we talk about, in biology, extinctions in terms of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years. And to see a, a, a large assemblage of frog populations plummet like that is, is worrisome. And uh, the unfortunate quick answer to why this is occurring is we just don't know yet fully. There is a worldwide declining amphibians task force that's being coordinated by the Society for the Study of Amphibians and Reptiles, uh, to which I'm a member. And this group worldwide is a group of perhaps five or 6,000 herpetologists that are keeping an eye out and trying to figure out what's happening to our worldwide amphibians. We haven't seen perhaps any, any real big population changes that I've observed in Sullivan County in, in perhaps the last 20 or 30 years, but it seems to be several things are happening globally. Uh, number one, there's been an increase in a specific type of fungus that may have been spread unintentionally by the release of African clawed frogs from research institutes in the 1930s through 1960s. Uh, this fungus called a chytrid is native to Africa where the African clawed frogs also occur. And when we take these frogs and then we inadvertently release them, maybe uh, unfortunately out the back window of a science lab someplace, those frogs can certainly survive, and as all introduced species can do, they can affect other populations. Mm. And this fungus that they may also be carrying seems to be implicated in at least some cases of amphibian decline worldwide. Uh, there's many factors, though. Uh, it's been postulated that the changes in the Earth's ozone layer may be affecting ultraviolet radiation penetrating 
the atmosphere and affecting the survival of amphibian eggs. In shallow waters like this pond, without the shade of these trees, direct ultraviolet radiation may actually cook the eggs and, and cause them not to develop or to develop improperly as embryos. And Bill, you began sharing with us that as a child you became very interested in the animal world and in going out into your backyard into different areas of uh, the Catskills here in Orange County. What is it specifically about the amphibians and the reptiles that you are drawn to and uh, that you are continuing to gather knowledge about this world? As a child in Houston would go around at night and I would see how many toads I could find just in the neighborhoods because uh, there there were so many toads and also the uh, chameleons. Yeah. You know, so there were just so many of those. And then in Los Angeles, we had these desert mm -hmm. lizards. They looked very prehistoric and kind of thick skin, kind of brownish, black in color. And they, they lived in the backyards, which nice. was really amazing. For you, why herpetology? <laughs> I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> it's kind of hard to meet people, too, sometimes that don't share a similar hobby, if you will. But I guess what got me started was probably the, the perceived ick factor. I just thought it was cool that so many people were afraid of or disliked something that I really found interesting. And I guess my curiosity level is really facilitated by my parents. Uh, they, they were my, my dad was a teacher and my mom was a nurse. So there was always this uh, kind of scientific approach in the household about discovery and finding out things in the backyard and bringing them in. And now I've actually had the chance going through public school to, to encounter science textbooks that made reference to, I remember my fifth grade science textbook, regrettably, that uh, made a note that uh, probably students would never have a chance to discover their own species of plant or animal, and that we seem to already have a lot of knowledge about uh, the world around us already, and that science was perhaps going to go in a laboratory-based direction. Perhaps my... Uh, the side of me that said, no, that's not right. There's so much we don't know yet kicked in. And I just kept my curiosity going. And uh, for a message for our young listeners out there certainly would be, there's so many unknowns. You need to stay in school and uh, with your parents' permission, and please ask them first, head outside to the local swamp and get wet. Find things, discover things, and get on the Internet. Do some research. Head down to the library and learn some more. Because for all you learn and know, there's a million things that you have not yet discovered. And you might be the very one student here from Sullivan County that makes a big breakthrough. Keep doing it. So what here, Bill, we're in the eastern part of Sullivan County in Liberty. What is in these woods and in this water possibly? What kind of wildlife are we talking about? You mentioned the spotted salamander, which I didn't know about. And now I'm going to start to look for and then they're the small translucent orange. Are they newts or? You're probably seeing red efts, which are actually newt teenagers. Uh, newts go through a three-phase life cycle. They start out as an egg in an aquatic greenish, kind of an olive drab larva with external gills uh, up to about an inch long. When they're two or three years old, they'll metamorphose into a terrestrial fluorescent orange juvenile. They're still not sexually mature yet, however, so they move back out into the woodlands, and after a nice warm spring rain, it's not uncommon to be able to walk out in the woods and see these fluorescent orange critters walking around. The only caution there is that bright orange coloration is actually a warning sign, and it's in biological terms, it's called posmatism. 
uh, or a cryptic coloration that is bright enough to elicit a warning response. And that aposmatic coloration uh, should be a warning. And in fact, these newts can be poisonous to cats and, and dogs if they're actually ingested. So they're also very distasteful. So the, the first warning is, if it tastes bad, don't eat it and spit it out if you're a cat or a dog. But more importantly, that color is necessary for their survival. And uh, as they mature and become sexually mature adult salamanders, they lose that bright orange protective coloration again. And they head back into a fully aquatic adult life cycle where they mm. stay for the rest of their days as an olive drab, four inch long salamander. I'll have to look out for those too because I see them in that teenage body and not in the adult body. Sure. So now I have to start looking for them. And uh, what else? is probably living here. Wow, there's so much here. There's perhaps 40 to 43 species of reptiles and amphibians in Sullivan County. And um, I haven't found them all myself yet. I'm still looking. I found them in some in other counties, but not all here yet. So the, the, the mystery is, how do they all interrelate together? And, and how do they, what part of the ecosystem niche do they represent? And just in a small area like this, we've just discussed a few, but we could expect, I see some sphagnum moss here, which is an indication that perhaps four-toed salamanders are here, hemidactylum scutatum. Uh, there could definitely be around the house, I'm going to guess eastern milk snakes, garter snakes, northern water snakes probably here in the pond. Maybe you've seen ringnecks or red-bellied snakes, perhaps a smooth green snake out in the, the grassier areas out front just on snakes. Turtles, I would expect snappers maybe in here, perhaps painted turtles. Wood turtle wouldn't be uncommon at all. Stink pot, maybe, which is... Uh... <laughs> okay, okay, let's find out more about the stink pot. Right. Well, stink pots are great turtles. They're four to five inches long, and they're aptly named. Uh, the, the more conventional name is eastern musk turtle, but I like stink pot myself, and that's more indicative of what they do. They have some really nasty scent glands at the bases of their hind legs, which as a, as a deterrent to predators, they'll musk this terrible odor out when you pick them up. And that's enough usually to make you drop them on the spot and leave them alone. <laughs> don't, don't mess around with those. <laughs> They're real fun turtles. Last late spring, early summer, I saw a snapping turtle making its way actually on the grass outside my house and then climb down the rock wall into this pond, dove in, and that was the last I saw of that turtle. It was amazing. And once, many years ago, I saw a beautiful turtle, much, much smaller than... I think I hear it. I hear a spring peeper. Okay. My apologies to the listening audience. Here it goes. That's a little artificial sound clip of a spring peeper. We've got one that's returning a call back here across the pond. That frog was uh, definitely responding to you. Biologists always look for ways to classify things and pigeonhole species and putting them together with interrelated characteristics. And spring peepers are, are one of those frog groups that forever, it seems, have been called tree frogs. You know, we think of spring peepers because they have sticky disks on their toes as tree frogs. Well, in the 1980s, herpetologists got together and started thinking about this in a little more detail. And they said, you know what? We've got all these groups of western frogs that we call chorus frogs that also have the sticky toe discs and look and act and genetically seem just like spring peepers. So why don't we reclassify them? So in the 1980s, 
Biologists changed the classification, the naming system for this frog. It formerly was called Hyla crucifer. Hyla is a group of, of uh, it's a name that kind of relates to tree frogs. And they assigned a, a different genus name, Sudacris. And that refers more appropriately to chorus frogs. So our spring peepers are not tree frogs at all. They're actually chorus frogs. And that, that massive calling that you'll hear that's deafening and, and almost makes it impossible to, to really locate a specific frog in the pond is, is because they are chorus frogs and they are calling together, which also kind of deters predators. You can't echolocate. You can't pick one out really well unless you're really good and, and hone right in on it. So we just heard one, and like you just said, there, there will be soon, later tonight, there will be a chorus, just a wall of the sound of these peepers, the chorus frogs. Where are they? What Are they in the water? Are they in the trees? What do they look like? I mean, they've, all, they've been a complete mystery to me. Well, Sabrina, these little noisemakers are only about an inch long, and they're very cryptically colored, a very light brown, almost a coppery brown with a kind of a jagged, nondistinct, darkish X on their backs. And being that they're only an inch long, it's amazing to think that they can make so darn much racket. <laughs> they can really get going. And uh, if we have a chance to see one, right now they're probably hunkered down at the water level in these little tussocks and tufts of grass and vegetation. They will ascend into trees, and you'll sometimes hear spring peepers in the fall calling. And it's not really known why, so this is another great mystery. If there's any burgeoning scientists out there, you might want to think about maybe a master's thesis or a PhD dissertation on why do spring peepers head up into the trees in the fall and call sporadically. It's really not known. And Bill, where do they go in the winter? So they've just reappeared this spring. Where have they been? And then where do they go? Because I only hear them. I've, I will listen this fall. I've not noticed that in the fall. But uh, I'm curious what their cycle is and how long do they live and that sort of thing. Their, their lifespan is reasonably short, unfortunately. They probably survive four to five to six years, I think would be a comfortable estimate. Being that they're small, they've, they've got a pretty high turnover rate. In ecology, we talk about things uh, in terms of demonstrating populations as case-selected or R-selected traits. And this is an older term, but it still has some merit. K-selected traits in biology refer to quality-based assessments. R-selected traits tend to focus on quantity. Now, spring peepers, being that they're pretty ubiquitous, there's lots of them, they tend to be more of those R-selected type animals, where they, they have a high turnover rate, they produce lots of young, and lots of them get eaten, but there's always some left to survive and carry on. A K-selected organism might be a good example would be a human where there's lots of maternal care, uh, mom puts lots of energy into raising the young, only a few young are produced, and uh, that forms the basis of that population group, that family unit. Uh, frogs, of course, don't have family units, but being that they, they have such a large population range, they can really spread out and, and be exploit all kinds of habitats, I guess is the best way to say it. Let's take a walk over here. Maybe we can get a look at some stuff. We're at the water's edge, and I would guess probably within a 10-foot radius around us. There's perhaps five or six spring peepers. And in a few hours when it's dark, if the wind dies down a little bit, they'll be out in mass. They'll be calling like crazy. If we get lucky, maybe we'll just scare one up and get a chance to look at it firsthand. This is interesting. These are wood frog eggs here, Sabrina, and they have that kind of jelly-like mass. If you can imagine, uh, for our radio listeners, uh, perhaps a six-inch ball of jelly, clear jelly, with little 
larval salamanders inside. These are fertilized eggs. They're developing. They're embryos at this point. And uh, in these jelly masses, there's perhaps two or three hundred embryos that are developing. These will hatch out in the warm sun of the spring wetland here in the next week or two. And the larval salamanders will then work their way out into this wetland. They're, they're grazers. They're herbivores at this stage in their lives. And they'll munch on algae and things like that that are present in the water. There are many of them. I'm looking out that direction too. There are masses of these eggs. You said these are? These are wood frog eggs here. There's lots of biology that actually occurs in these jelly masses as well. There are unique species of algae that will colonize these egg masses and it forms the first basis, the first meal if you will, for some of these larval frogs and, and salamanders and toads that will come out in the spring. And wood frogs, of course, uh, are not salamanders, of course. Their tadpoles are going to work on munching off those algae that are living in the egg masses. That gives them their first meal, and then they, as they get bigger, they can work on larger things in the pond. Let's continue wandering through the woods. I want to thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful knowledge that you have about our Sullivan County wildlife. I've been speaking with Bill Cutler, our local amphibian and reptile expert. We're here in Liberty, New York, at my house. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels.